There are quite a few people visiting with us uh, this morning, and if you're visiting with us, my name's uh, Michael Matala. I'm one of the pastors here at New Breed. I'm so thankful that you are here and visiting with us. Hope you've uh, enjoyed that time of worship and just praising our God who is faithful. Amen. Some powerful songs. We believe we will see the goodness of the Lord. Amen. And so when things get tough, when things aren't going the way that we might want them to go, we hold on to the fact that we will one day see the goodness of the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18. And so when you've arrived there, will you stand as we read God's word together? Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Hear what Paul writes. He says... Brothers and sisters, I am using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes addition to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. My point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we work through this text in Galatians chapter 3, I pray, I pray God that we would first and foremost just believe the promises that you have given to us. That we would believe that you are a faithful God who always comes through. And I pray that as we think through the covenant of, of promise versus the covenant of law, that we would just be in awe of the fact, God, that you have worked this covenant throughout history. And that you have been faithful to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to a place of faith. Where we too can share in the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. So Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're jumping back into our study through the book of Galatians. And the title of this entire, entire series through the book of Galatians has been Getting Back to Grace. Getting back to grace where Paul is calling the churches in Galatia to come back to that which they have abandoned. To come back to grace. And it was great to have a couple of weeks away from the book. Uh, so we got to hear from Pastor Mark two weeks ago. Uh, and we got to hear from Pastor, uh, or, well from, from me I guess, last week. Sorry, my dates are off. Uh, as we considered baptism and got to celebrate uh, five baptisms here at Newbreed, and so we took a look at what it looks like to live in light of baptism. But I'm excited to get back into this book with you, and the title of our sermon this morning is Trusting in the Promises of God. Trusting in the Promises of God. And I want to let you know right up front that I have two objectives this morning, two things that I hope to get accomplished by the time that we close. And the first one is this, I hope we see from the text that the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law. That the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law. But the second thing that I want to accomplish this morning is I hope to press you a little bit this morning. I hope to press you to actually believe the promises of God. I want you to believe them. 
And the reason that this is one of my chief aims this morning is because more than we may realize, we often fail to believe the promises of God. We fail to hold fast to that which God has promised he will do in light of what Christ has done. For many Christians, kind of claiming these promises of God scares us. And I believe I know why. I believe I know why we're hesitant to claim these promises of God as our own. And my suspicion is that because we have seen the promises of God abused and used to lead people astray, rather than finding a balanced and biblical approach to how we should understand God's promises, we've just abandoned them altogether. Well, claiming the promises of God is all about the health, wealth, and prosperity. We can't do that. We can't claim that which God has, has, has said to us because if, if we do, we're going to be one of those folks. And I want to say this expi- explicitly clear this morning, that if we fail to hold on to the promises of God, we have no hope. And if we fail to believe that God will do that which he has said he will do, we have no hope. And some of us here in this room, hear me, need to hold God to his word. I want to be clear, not because if we don't hold God to his word, he won't show up. It doesn't depend on us. It's not about us. God doesn't need us to hold him to his word in order for him to come through. But many of us need to hold God to his word so that we would actually believe God when he says things. When he speaks promises. Some people believe that if they claim the promises of God as their own, they are stepping outside of orthodoxy. And I would argue this morning that if we do not faithfully claim the promises of God as our own, we are stepping outside of orthodoxy. But we have to do this faithfully. We have to be careful in how we claim the promises of God because, as I mentioned, many people have abused this. Many people have have claimed God's promises in ways that God did not intend for them to be used. You've heard probably, well, if you remember here, I know you have because I kind of rail on it a lot, but the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? That if we have enough faith that God has promised that you will be healthy, that you will be wealthy, and that you will prosper in all that you do. And they use scripture to back that up. The problem is that's just not what God has promised. We we take God's promises of protection to mean that God will always give us good health. When in fact God's promise of protection is that he will see us safely through to the other side. Might not be easy. It might not go well. We might not have perfect health. But God will protect us and he will see us safely through. Many of us have taken God's promises that he will, when we are faithful, supply all of our needs to mean that God wants to give us incredible wealth beyond anything this world has ever known. And what we've confused is the difference between a want and a need. But God has promised that he will meet all of our needs. He won't give us everything that we want. Some have taken scriptures like we are more than conquerors in Christ to mean that no matter what we do, we will always prosper and we will never have a hard time. What that passage is actually talking about is that in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors when it comes to our sin. That we can overcome because of what Christ has done in the spirit that is within us. So we have to be careful when we look at the promises of God. But what we have to make sure we don't do is abandon the promises of God altogether. So those are my two aims this morning. I hope to accomplish the first aim as we do the exegetical work of breaking down and explaining the text. 
And I hope to accomplish the second aim as I attempt to apply each of our points this morning to our own lives. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been in the book of Galatians, so before we can get into our text this morning, I want to kind of recap, highlight some of the things that have happened in the verses prior, some of the things that we've seen throughout the book, some of the things that Pastor Kurt has preached on about three weeks back, because it's very important to our text this morning. But, but if you remember, what's going on in the book of Galatians is that Paul is in the midst of confronting the false teaching of the Judaizers regarding the law. Now, Judaizers were those who came in and they basically argued that in order for you to be a Christian, you had to be a Jew first. So so Gentiles could be made right with God, but they had to do it by, by keeping the Jewish law. So in essence, they were promoting the law over faith. And, and the problem is that these lies had, had gained a foothold in the churches in Galatia. They were believing this. They were believing that they had to keep the law in order to be made right with God. So much so that grown men were considering being circumcised in order to keep the law. And so Paul is dealing with this false idea that that in order to be made right with God, you have to functionally become a Jew. And so what these Judaizers believed, even though they might not have exactly said it this way, was that salvation was by keeping the law. You are made right with God by what you do. And for the Judaizers, they understood the promises of God as only applying to the people of God. And in that sense, they were right. But the problem was, they defined the people of God differently than God did. So in the verses preceding our text, Paul reminds his readers that, and this is in verse 7, those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. And so we see that God defines his people not based on their ethnic identity, but rather based on faith. Now, we want to be clear because we talked about this and saw this in Galatians chapter 2. This does not in any way mean that ethnic identity does not matter. We talk about that when we saw Paul's interaction with Peter. And so we dealt with this idea of the gospel and our ethnic identity. And one of the things that we said was that our, our ethnic identity does not go away in light of the gospel. We are still who God has created us to be, so much so that in Revelation 7, and you remember this from the sermon, when when John sees this picture of glory, he says that that he saw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And how did he know they were from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Because they were all wearing the same thing. They were all wearing white robes, and they were all singing the same song. It's because even in glory, people will retain their ethnic identity because God delights in diversity. God delights in it. But then what we said after that, though, is that we can never elevate our ethnic identity to too high a place because the gospel is always superior to our ethnic identity, always. We talked a little bit about what that looks like and what it means. And so so ethnic identity matters. But what Paul is continuing to argue here in chapter three, beginning of verse seven, is that God defines his people not based on ethnic identity, but rather based on faith. He even highlights that in the promise to Abraham, in the covenant that was established, this covenant of promise, God was already thinking in larger terms than simply ethnic Israel. Isn't God great? 
When God made this promise to Abraham, he was already thinking on a larger scale than just ethnic Israel. How do we know that? Because he said, all the nations will be blessed. But then Paul reminds his readers, uh, beginning in verse 11, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so basically what Paul is saying is that you cannot be made right with God by the law. You cannot be made right with God by what you do. The law and your works cannot save. But what the law could not do, Christ did. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so if Paul is arguing that our hope, that the churches in Galatia's hope is not found in the covenant of the law. Now we'll see next week that the covenant of the law still matters. We can't see the law as necessarily a bad thing. The law serves a purpose. The law still serves a purpose today. The law in and of itself is not a bad thing, but hope is not found in the covenant of law. It is found in something greater. It's found in the covenant of promise. It is found in Christ's work on our behalf. And so we come to our text this morning, and in, in, in verse or in these four verses, Paul is going to offer four reasons why the covenant of promise, meaning the covenant established with Abraham, is greater than the covenant of law, meaning the covenant that was established at Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law. So in these four verses, he's going to offer four reasons why the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law. And what I want to do is walk through these four arguments and hopefully as we do so, challenge us to hold fast to the promises of God. You with me so far? All right, so here is Paul's first argument for the covenant of promise being greater than the covenant of law. Paul argues the covenant of promise is unchangeable. The covenant of promise is unchangeable. Look there at verse 15. Paul says, brothers and sisters, I am using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. So hear me, what Paul is doing is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And he's asking his readers to consider an earthly covenant, to consider uh, an earthly will, an earthly agreement, and consider how we understand that to be unchangeable. So he's assuming the question, how much more should it be with God? You know... When Aliyah and I uh, moved in into the West End, however many years back, uh, we, we bought a house. Um, you know, I'd lived in the West End before, and, uh, but this was the first house that we bought. And, and if you've bought a house, you're aware of this. If you haven't bought a house, get ready. Um, but when you buy a house, there is more paperwork than you could imagine. They were saying things in words. I mean, I'll call it what it is. They could have taken advantage of me, and I, advantage of me, and I just kind of quit listening after a while. So many things that you have to sign and all this stuff. Now, you know, I work here at Newbury Church, so you know what you pay me. You know that I couldn't pay cash for this house, okay? So I had to take out something called a mortgage, like most people have to take out a mortgage. And what that mortgage basically says is that over a certain amount of time, I will... I will pay back 
the loan that they've given me. They gave me a loan, and so I have 30 years, right? I did 30 years, which seems like an eternity for me. 30 years. They said do a 15, and I was like, I work for a nonprofit. My bank account says nonprofit. Um, but we did 30 years. And basically what we said is that we will pay back the money that we owe you. We will pay this certain amount every month. And if we default on this, you get to take the house back. And it was a, an agreement. It was a covenant. It was, it was an, earthly, uh, an, an, an earthly contract. Now, what do you think would happen... So, so I, I got my mortgage, they sold it to someone else, which I didn't even know you could do that. But what if I went to Kentucky Housing and I walked in their office and I said, hey guys, I've decided I don't want to pay you as much as I'm paying you right now. I think I'm just going to go with $100 a month, but still keep the 30 years. How do you think that would go over? I would not have my home in a few months. And so we would understand that that contract, that that agreement, that it is unchangeable. And the only way that it can be changed in an earthly sense is if I agree to change it and the bank agrees to change it. You with me? Well, here's the thing about God. He's the party in the contract that never changes. He never changes. And so... What we understand about the promises of God, the covenant of God that was made to Abraham is that this covenant, this agreement, this, this will, if you will, is unchangeable because God is an unchangeable God. We know that because of James 1.7 where it says every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But here's something incredible. The author of Hebrews speaks of the unchangeable nature of God, even as it refers to this covenant of promise in God's dealing with Abraham when he writes in Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, check this out, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you. I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. And our God swore on himself. See, when God made this covenant with Abraham, he swore by himself because there was no one greater he could swear by. And this was meant to show all of us who have received the inheritance that this covenant will stand forever. Now, church, I know that might sound like a lot, but do you know what good news that is to us? That the promises of God depend on God and not us? Because here's the thing, church, and hear me really clearly. Our circumstances will change. Our families will change. Our friends will change. Our locations will change. Our health will change. We are constantly moving from one season of life to another. It feels like once we get our feet planted, something else changes. But the amazing thing about our God is he never does. The guarantee of all God's promise is God himself, the one who stands outside of our changing times and simultaneously, simultaneously steps in to meet us where we are is the one who holds all the promises in his hand. God's promises are not secured by anything we are or anything we do. God's promises are secured by him and him alone. And an unchanging God can guarantee unchanging promises. 
In other words, church, you never have to doubt if God will come through. He may not come through how you want. He may not come through when you want. But his ways are perfect and his promises are unchanging. Therefore, we have hope. We have hope. Again, God might not do it how you want it done. He might not do it when you want it done. Peter tells us this when he says that God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some consider slow, slowness, but he is patient. You see, when God withholds giving the promise in the way and the time that you want, it's because God is allowing you to grow. He's doing something. He's being patient, but God's promises are unchangeable because our God is unchanging. So Paul is arguing for the significance of the covenant of promise as he reminds us that the one who initiated them is unchanging. And if we expect earthly contracts to stand, we can guarantee divine ones will not falter. Here's the second argument that Paul is making for why the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law. The second argument he makes is that the covenant of promise established was pointing to Christ. The covenant of promise that was established was pointing to Christ. Look at verse 16. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds. He's quoting from Genesis 22 there. As though referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, who is Christ. You know, one of the amazing things about God is that is, is how he's chosen to reveal himself and his plan. You know, we believe in something called progressive revelation. And what that means is that, that as time has proceeded and as it continues to proceed, God has been revealing progressively more and more of his plan. In other words, God revealed to Paul more than he revealed to Moses. Paul understood a little better what was taking place with Abraham than Abraham did being in that moment. And scripture helps us understand scripture. And so when God told Abraham what he was doing, when God made this promise that, that all the nations would be blessed, when God spoke of his seed being a blessing and the means by which inheritance would come, Abraham believed, but Abraham didn't have the full picture. And so Paul helps us understand a little bit more what was going on there. And what Paul says reveals to us that the promise to Abraham was ultimately the promise of Jesus. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. When God was establishing the covenant of promise, he was declaring that the Messiah was coming and this Messiah would save people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And the covenant of promise points us to Jesus. The covenant of promise is Jesus. And this makes complete sense in light of 2 Corinthians 1.20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. That is such a powerful verse of scripture because think of the implications of that. E even to what we talked about last week when we talked about baptism, we can look at Galatians 3.27 where it says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our union with Christ means that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And remember the quote I shared with you last week from Sinclair Ferguson? The significance of our union with Christ? He says, if I am united with Christ, then all that is his is mine. Now think about that. All God's promises find their yes in Christ. He is the fulfillment of every blessing, of every good thing. He is the fulfillment of all of our hope. He is the fulfillment of our inheritance. He is the one who gives good gifts. It all culminates in Jesus. And because of faith, we are united with Christ and all that he is and all that he has. And all of those promises that culminate in him find their yes in him are ours because of our union with Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's greatest promise and all other promises are fulfilled in him. Here's the third reason Paul gives for why the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law. The third argument that he makes is that the covenant of promise was formed prior to the law. That the covenant of promise was formed prior to to the law. Look at verse 17. He says, my point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. The crazy thing was, was from when God spoke this to Abraham, it actually would have been closer to 650 years. Now, where we get the 430 from is because the last time that God reiterated this covenant was to Jacob. And then God didn't mention it again for 430 years until the law came. Now, he honored the covenant. He upheld the covenant because God doesn't fail and he doesn't forget what he says. But for 430 years, it was just the covenant of promise. And the argument that the Judaizers are making is when the covenant of law came, it superseded that covenant. And Paul is saying, no, the covenant of promise existed long before the covenant of law. It matters more. But here's what's even more interesting. John MacArthur notes this in his commentary. He says, even the covenant with Abraham did not establish the principle of salvation by faith, but it only verified and typified it. From the time of Adam's fall, faith had been the only means of man's becoming right with God. He says all that the covenant of promise does was verify and explain what has always existed, that, that salvation is by faith, that, that we are made right with God by faith. It's not about the law. Church, it has always been about the promise. It has always been about the promise. It has always been about Jesus. From the very beginning, Jesus has been the center of the story. Not our works, not what we do, not the law. Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus was the center of the story in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell and God tells Satan that you will, you will bruise his heel but he will crush your head. Jesus was the center of the story. Jesus was the center of the story when somebody wrestled with Jacob. Jesus has been the center of the story when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fire and a fourth person showed up. 
It's been Jesus from beginning to end. It has always been about the promise. And all of God's promise culminate in Jesus. And if this is the case, this testifies to just how faithful our God is. Men and women have come and gone. Kings and queens have come and gone. Nations have come and gone. At some point, this nation will exist no more. And through all of that, God has not faltered. God has not failed. God has not wavered. And the works of man have not changed for a moment the promise that God made. He is faithful. And this reminds us of two things that are helpful for us as we attempt to cling to the promises of God. It reminds us first that God's ways are not our ways. God has worked throughout the history of, 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 of the, this universe's existence in ways that we never could have come up with. He's worked in ways that we still don't even know. He's worked in ways we will never know. God's ways are not our ways. God works in our lives in ways that we might not understand. As I mentioned earlier, just because God isn't showing up into your circumstance, into your struggle, into your trial, in the way that you want him to or, or when you want him to, it does not mean that God is not working because his ways are so much higher than our ways. God is doing things that only he can do. But the second thing that it reminds us of is not only are God's ways not our ways, but it reminds us that God cannot fail. Even though the earth gives way, God cannot fail. The fourth reason Paul gives for why the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law is because that when it comes to the, prom to the covenant of promise, the covenant is fulfilled. That's very important, church. The covenant is fulfilled. Look at verse 18 when Paul says, For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. The inheritance that Abraham received, the reward was because of faith. Not because he kept the law. Listen, Abraham didn't even have the law. And he was counted as righteous. Why? Because of faith. Faith. And you want to talk about faith. We have faith in someone we can look back on and say by name. And we know what he did and how it happened. We, we have categories to think through, through, through sanctification and, and to think through justification and to think through re regeneration. We have categories to think through penal substitution. We, we have categories to think through the atonement. Abraham was just banking on the fact that somehow, some way, God is going to bless the nations. And he was believing in Christ even though he didn't know his name. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham received the promise through faith. He has received it. Jesus fulfilled the promise of God. And Abraham is counted as righteous because of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the one who was promised. And we know that that is Jesus Christ. So again, we can say for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. We praise God for this. 
Abraham did not receive his inheritance because of what he had done. It was not based on the law. It wasn't because he kept all the religious rules because they didn't even exist yet. Rather, because the God who promised is faithful. And church, hear me. We have to believe that the God who promises is faithful. Listen, when God says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives it generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. That is a promise. And some of us need to believe that. Some of us right now are trying to make these monumental life decisions and we think that God is absent. We think that we've got to figure it out on our own. We've got to make our checklist and we've got to weigh the pros and the cons. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. But God has promised that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And he says, and I will give it generously, abundantly, overflowing and ungrudgingly. And it will be given to you. The problem is some of us don't believe that promise. We just don't believe that God will show up. Or we think that our wisdom is greater than God's wisdom. I can't be talking about anybody in here. When God says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, some of us have to believe that promise. That there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. That when you sin and when you step out of line, when you miss the mark, even as a believer, that God is not pleased, God is not glorified, God does not love you more because you condemn yourself. He says there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, because Jesus Christ took our condemnation, he took our sin, he took our shame, he took our punishment, and he left it in a tomb. And so we worship God that because of what Christ has done, we can have restored fellowship with him through faith and repentance. But some of us are running around condemning ourselves, believing that it will please God. And we have to believe the promise of God that there is no condemnation for us who, is in, who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, when God says, if my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Some of us need to believe that promise. You know, I've told you, you know this about me, that I pray, I pray that revival will come in our community, that revival will come through our church, that revival will, there will just be a, an overflowing of the spirit. But the thing is, is that God has promised that he will do it. And he tells us how, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, maybe we don't believe that he will show up if we humble ourselves. We pray and seek his face. Many of us don't believe that if we pray and seek his face that he'll actually come through and do that which he has said he will do. If we turn from our evil ways, if we repent, God will bring revival. And some of us just aren't believing that promise that if, if, if we do those things, if we humble ourselves, if, if, we, if we repent of our sins, if we seek his face, that God will show up in a way that we could never have imagined. That God will move through this church and through this community in a way that we have never imagined. That's not a suggestion by God. That's a promise of what he will do. Even our prayers reveal our dependence on the promises of God. Charles Spurgeon once said that the best praying man is the man who, who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all prayer, he says, after all prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, do as you have said you will do. Prayer is the promise utilized. A prayer which is not based on a promise has no true foundation. See, I think some of the, prob the problem for many of us might be we don't even know what God has promised us. So how do we pray that? 
How do we depend on the promises of God if we don't even know what he said he will do? Now, most of us in the room, we got the big one, right? That he'll forgive our sins. Praise God. But you know that he has promised more to you? That he has promised how he will work in your life in light of what Christ has done? And sometimes I think we just think God will just magically do it even though we don't do what we're called to do. And God just doesn't work like that. I believe our God sits in heaven right now and he says, I will heal your land. I'm ready to heal your land. Will you humble yourself, seek my face and repent of your sins and watch me work? Because God is faithful. He is unchangeable. He has not forgotten his promises. And when we doubt that God will come through in some of those smaller things, we have to look to the greatest of things and see Christ crucified in the empty tomb and be reminded that God has not forgotten how to be faithful to the promise. The gospel reminds us that our God will always come through. When we doubt his faithfulness, we look to Christ. Going back to what I said earlier, God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that though we had sinned, though we had rebelled, that there was coming one who would crush the head of Satan. God promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that he would receive an inheritance that would come from his seed. God promised Elijah that one day you will see the thing which you have longed to see, redemption. God promised Moses that he would enter the promised land, and yet on earth he didn't. But he entered. Because all of these promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came he lived the perfect life. He died to pay for our sins and he was crucified, buried and raised from the dead. And that resurrection declares to us that all of God's promises find their yes in him. And we have hope. We have hope. So church, my plea with you this morning is first that you would believe that the covenant of promise is greater than the covenant of law. That it is not about what you do, but it is about what Christ has done. Now, I'm not saying your actions don't matter. We know that they do. That's a, another conversation. It's actually coming next week. But that our hope is not based on how well we perform. Praise God. But our hope is based on what Christ has already done. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the one who holds all God's promises in his hand. And so we can say amen to the glory of God. Let it be because of what Christ has done. And if you are here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus, I want you to understand that the promises aren't for you, but they can be. They can be. Because our sin separates us from God. Our sin is a, a divine offense against a holy God. And our sin is any time we disobey what God has laid out for us. Our sin, it does, it separates us, and we deserve death and hell because of our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, God in flesh, to live the perfect life that we were always supposed to live but we couldn't do, and to die in our place. And he did. He took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of God's wrath and God's hatred of sin, and he took it on himself, and he was crucified and put in a tomb, Three days later, he raised from the dead. 
And scripture tells us that he was crucified for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. And because Jesus is alive, you can be made right with God. And you do that by placing your faith in him, believing that he is the only way that you can be made right with God. That on your own, you will face the full anger of a holy God, but Christ has taken that on your behalf. And then the Bible says we repent of our sins. We, we turn from our sins. We, we agree with God that our ways are not best and his ways are. And we strive after him and we will falter and we will fail but we continue to run that race living lives of repentance believing that the promises are held in Jesus and Jesus alone amen